February 3rd, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we present a dramatic reading of the first two chapters of my magical adventure novel, The Tomb of Prester John. This is the second broadcast of the novel, presenting the second chapter, but also a rewritten version of chapter one. So if you missed the first broadcast, you will still be caught up with the story. Prester John was a legendary Asian Christian priest king with a vast treasure. After he died, he Letters from him were sent to European leaders during the Crusades, which Doc Rowland and his beautiful lady archaeologist partner think is a code leading to his tomb and the treasure. But their quest is imperiled by terrorists and traitors within their own sponsoring organization. The tomb of Prester John is a combination of Indiana Jones and James Bond, So if you like romantic adventure with an occult twist, tune in and enjoy High Adventure. And this is is a rewrite of the first abstract. We'll feature a dramatic reading of the first two chapters of The Tomb of Prester John, a new magical adventure novel by Hermetic Hour host Polk Runyon. The protagonist of the story is the same Indiana Jones-ish anthropologist that Pope created and portrayed in his film Beyond Lemuria, where we saw Doc Rowland exploring the ruined city of Don Madol. In this new adventure, Rowland and his beautiful belly-dancing lady archaeologist, Sophia Skandar, go in search of the fabulous tomb of the legendary medieval priest king, Prester John. They have a 12th century letter written by Prester John to the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa uh, and an antique magic lantern to decode the script. They know the tomb is located somewhere in eastern Turkey, but Sophie must evoke the prophetess Jezebel in a full moon ritual dance. Throughout their adventure, they are stalked by Sophie's former lover, Khalil Ibn Iblis, a terrorist who believes he is the true reincarnation of Hassan Saba and has revived Saba's medieval cult of the assassins. As this progresses, we will hear it chapter by chapter on the Hermetic Hour. So if you want to get in at the beginning, stay tuned and get ready for high adventure. Now this is chapter one, the tomb of Prester John, a Doc Rowland adventure, Chapter 1, The Lamp of Truth. Professor Marion Doc Rowland waited until he returned home to open the package that had been delivered to his office at the UCF campus that afternoon. It had been forwarded to him from the United States Consulate in Beirut, Beirut, Lebanon. Sent by a lady archaeologist, a colleague he he was working with on a research project. She had mailed it through the U.S. consulate for diplomatic immunity to avoid Lebanese customs. She could do this thanks to MIFTEC, the CIA think tank that Doc Rowland and Professor Sophia Iskandar of the American University in Beirut both belonged to. Sophie had emailed him telling him that the light of truth is on the way to you, so he had some idea of what was in the package. He mixed his evening shot of scotch on the rocks, stuffed his crusty old briar pipe with pungent Amazon shamanic tobacco from a leather pouch made of human skin, and settled down in his easy chair. He flipped open his Gerber covert knife to rip open the package. Inside was a letter and an envelope, in an envelope, marked personal to Doc Rowland, and an artifact swathed in bubble wrap. The object was almost 18 inches long. Roland unwrapped it carefully, revealing a long copper tube with a brass dome on one end and a small brass oil lamp on the other. The copper tube was perforated with shots, with slots in a random pattern, and it was obviously very old, but the elements pulled apart easily. Inside the tube... Forming a central skeleton was an armature of small mirrors to reflect light 
out of the slots in the sleeve. The device was a sort of a magic lantern. Roland stood the lamp upright on his desk and sat down. He finished his drink and lit up his pipe, clamping it in his teeth as he opened the letter from Sophie, Dr. Sophia Escondar, Ph.D., a brilliant anthropology professor at the American University of Beirut. He had met her at Stanford years ago and had worked with her on several projects over the last 10 years. Working with Sophie, especially in the field, was always an adventure. She was a beautiful woman with a provocatively voluptuous figure, a ballet dancer whose secret hobby was belly dancing. Although a devout Christian and always prudently dressed on campus, she wore short shorts and a loose shirt uh, out on the digs, and Doc remembered the time he had saved her from being gang-raped by Arab laborers. And from then on, where whenever he worked with Sophie in the field, he carried a gun. Fortunately, when you worked for MythTech, you could carry one anywhere in the world where the UN's blue flag was welcome. He opened her handwritten letter, inhaled a whiff of jasmine perfume, and read, Dearest Doc, I hope this finds you well and that you are still empowered to join me in the project we began five years ago. As you know, I have located one of the missing Prester John letters in Germany, the one intended for Frederick Barbarossa. Klaus informs me that it appears to be the original. Neither the parchment nor the ink are European, and the carbon dating tests to the 12th century. Most importantly, we recovered the lamp of truth from a private collector in Istanbul. I paid for it on my MythTech Visa card, one million U.S. dollars. Victor okayed the charge. The lamp is said to be the key to deciphering Prester John's code. I'm sending you the lamp because it's not safe for me to keep it here, and I know Victor wants to see it. The letter is still in Germany. We may now have to settle for a photocopy, but we will need both the letter and the lamp when we visit uh, Theatria. Read Revelation. Jezebel is the prophetess, and we must meet her there. On the night of the full moon, and then on to Ani. How soon can you arrange a month in your busy schedule for our adventure? Love which spans the ages, Sophie. Roland suppressed a vivid memory of Sophie dancing nude in the courtyard of an ancient ruined temple by moon and torchlight, her lithe and sensuous body glistening with oil, tattooed with all the symbols of the planets and the signs of the zodiac. She was much woman. He opened his laptop and sent her an encrypted email. Hello, my lady. Lamp of truth received. I will show it to M.T., as soon as I can arrange a sit-down with them on the PJ project. Be patient. PJ has run into political problems, like everything else over here. Prester John is politically incorrect. Love another indoor sports doc. He sent another encrypted email to the director of MythTech, the notorious billionaire Victor Polescu. He was the owner of three high-tech companies, including the firm that manufactured and programmed the, vote, the voting machines used in most of the American population centers. Of course, MythTech was an NGO, a non-government organization, but its coordinator was a CIA case officer, and it boasted all the power and influence of the agency and the State Department. Roland remembered that Palescu had taken a personal interest in the Prester John project and he had requested updates on it. His email was brief. To Director M.T. from Merlin, subject Prester John, date 3-7-14, via Crypto XI, have received Lamp of Truth from Zenobia. She has located the Barbarossa letter. She requests Project BJ go operative. I concur. I request meeting to review, assess, and approve. Please reply ASAP. Ten minutes later, his phone rang. As soon as Roland identified himself, Polescu's heavily accented voice gruffed, be in my office at 9.30 tomorrow morning and bring that damn lamp with you. 
It was an hour and a half drive from Fullerton to the high-rise office building on Wilshire Boulevard that Niftek inhabited. Roland secured his SUV in the basement parking area and took the elevator directly to the seventh floor, which was entirely devoted to Niftek. Carrying a locked briefcase chained to his left wrist, he stepped out into a security vestibule equipped with several surveillance systems, retinal scan, card entry, digital keyboard, and a metal detector. The 9mm automatic under his left shoulder started the metal detector squealing, but his card and his PIN number silenced the alarm. And the inner door clicked open, admitting him to a conventional office building hallway, Suite 702, was the first door on the left. He entered and nodded to Palestia's secretary. Is the boss in? Waiting for you, she said, gesturing toward the conference room. Roland entered and confronted Palestia and Smedley, their agency coordinator, sitting across the table from a chair they had positioned for him. Smedley had a stack of files and a computer tablet in front of him. Victor Palestia's gimlet-eyed steerer was intended to be intimidating, especially through the wreath of smoke from his Cuban cigar. Roland suspected that he practiced scowling exercises to accompany his Dracula accent. Sit down, Marion, and show us the lamp of truth. We are so anxious to be enlightened. Roland seated himself, placing his briefcase on the table. He tapped the keys on his wrist cuff to release the manacle, manacle, chain to the briefcase, and then the buttons on the case to open it. Inside was the lamp, wrapped up in a towel. He unwrapped the relic and stood it upright on the table. Smedley held up his tablet, displaying a black and white photo of an identical artifact. It's already on Wikipedia, Doc. What isn't these days, Roland grunted, grunted. Do you think it's worth a million dollars, Pulaski asked. Well, that's pocket money in your league, Victor Roland replied. The more I look into this, the more I am inclined to think that the, the letter was a joke and the lamp is a toy, Pulaski muttered. Yeah, that's what the Chinese thought, but they believed that we were, when we believed they were trying to prove, but they believe we were trying to prove Prester John was a Chinese Christian. Doc Roland countered as he began to light his pipe. They still think that that's our take on it. Smedley interjected, and they will continue in that delusion. Alaskew added, but our change in direction came from Russian research. Roland commented. He waved his cigar like an orchestra, orchestra conductor's baton and declared, and Eurosophia's discovery confirmed the Russian theory, and we have not shared that with the Chinese. Why not? We share everything else with them, Roland started. Agent Smedley gave Roland a hard glance. They had known each other in Army Special Forces and and Smedley knew Roland's contempt for the CIA. This is a poker game, Marion, and I am the dealer, Victor Pulaski informed. You deal from the bottom of the deck. When I find it necessary, Roland chuckled. Were you ever in MI6, Victor? Pulaski scowled. You don't need to know that. How are you going to keep them from thinking we are still hunting Yehu Dashi in Samarkand when we change course for Ani in Turkey? We'll send another team to Samarkand. Let the Chinese think your Ani expedition is a diversion. Does Niftek have a pool of expendable archaeologists? We often do parallel studies, you know that. What university is going to supply you with cannon fodder for this one? Smedley answered, both teams work independently. That's standard operating procedure and parallel operations. What are you going to do, fire us and hire a new crew? Roland asked. 
Well, that's what the Chinese will think. But you and Dr. Iskandar will continue on schedule, Victor Pulescu answered. Doc Rowland knocked the bottle out of his pipe in an ashtray full of Victor's cigar butts. Why go to all this trouble? Why not tell the Chinese we've given up on you, Udashi, and get them, and get them off our backs? Because they still want the treasure if there is one. Regardless of where it is buried, and Yelu Dashi is a piece in a chess game I'm playing with them, Pulaski explained. They think we have proof that the Khan of Karakatai was a Christian. The Chinese don't like anything that confirms Christianity in the history of Central Asia. And they can reach the tomb first, and if they can reach the tomb first, they can confiscate the treasure and rewrite history. Roland unpacked and unlit and, and, again and lit his pipe again. He blew a smoke ring and recited, "'Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days where destiny would mend for peaceless plays. Hither and thither moves and mates and slays, and one by one back in the closet lays. What is the motto of Mythic, Marion? Victor Pulescu asked. Controlling the power of belief for world peace, Professor Roland replied. That is also on a primary directive, the director added, which puts the Prester John Project in line with other modern discoveries, such as the Narcomati Library of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which tend to undermine and depower fundamental Judeo-Christian religion, in keeping with our cultural protocols. So we authorized and funded you and Madame Iskandar's project. But unfortunately, your initial direction did not conform with Chinese communist cultural paradigms. So that thus justifies MythTech terminating the project. Well, officially, yes, but unofficially, you and Dr. Iskandar are still in business. You'll be funded and supplied from a covert source. Like hell we will, Doc Rowland snarled as he rose from his chair. You want us to fly halfway around the world and go digging in the field with MSS agents tracking us? Those bastards kill people, Victor. I might do it alone, but I won't endanger Sophie. You can keep the damn lab. You paid for it. I quit. Rowland growled as he turned to leave the conference room. Sit down, Major Rowland, Smedley barked. You'll go as a civilian contractor or as a special forces officer on detached service. I'll have you back on active duty by tomorrow morning. Professor Marion Rowland, who was also Major Marion Rowland in the U.S. Army Special Reserve, knew that Agent Smedley of CIA would, could and would do just what he threatened. He sat back down. I said I might do it alone, but you'll have to give Sophie a chance to back out of this. We did. Pulescu said. She knows about the Chinese objections and our formal project cancellation, but she's still willing, even anxious, to proceed. We issued her a new credit card from XYZ Limited. So, if you don't go with her, she may find someone else to replace you. And that would compromise the project from out of position. One of her faculty colleagues, Roland asked? No possibly a former boyfriend. Roland remembered that Sophie had told him of a teenage romance she had had with a Persian boy when she was rebelling against her strict Christian convent upbringing. It had not gone well, but she had admitted to some fond memories of the affair. Smedley slid a mugshot photo of a man across the table. The man was 30-ish, bearded, with a piercing gaze and a wicked scar bisecting his face from the left temple to the right cheekbone. He looks dangerous, Roland observed. Smedley slid another photo across the table, showing the same man decapitating a live victim with a saw blade and hunting knife. Who is he, Roland asked. Well, he, he was Khalil Matawila. Now they call him Khalil Ibn Iblis. He claims to be the reincarnation of Hassan Saba, the imam of the assassins. He's trying to reestablish the old cult. He wants to rebuild Almut Castle. What does he have to do with the DJ project? Smedley slid over another photo. 
a teenage girl with her arm around a teenage boy, both smiling at the camera. Doc Rowland did not need to study the picture. He knew the girl was certainly Sophie, and the boy was obviously Khalil. Okay, so they knew each other. She told me it was over in six months, no big deal. But she had also told him that Khalil was was psychic, had conversations with angels, and had hypnotized her on several occasions, and had introduced her to psychedelic drugs and the occult. Smedley opened a file. This is her dossier. Did you know that she lived with him in San Francisco in the 1990s? That's when she got those tattoos all over her body. She worked as a stripper in a nightclub while they both attended college. That's where I first met her, Roland confirmed. All this came as a shock. He had never pried into Sophie's private life. He just accepted her as she was and let her tell him as much as she wanted about her life outside of academia. He knew that people who studied anthropology often had interesting background history, and and having had a life of adventure himself. So she's still in contact with Khalil, Roland asked. She defriended him on Facebook, Smiley replied. I don't do Facebook, Roland grunted. Yeah, but Facebook does you, Smedley grunted back. The agent gave Roland a photocopy of Sophie's file. Study this and burn it, he ordered emphatically. Let's wrap this up. I have another appointment in 15 minutes, Pelescu interrupted. The Preston John project is on. I'll summarize it for the record, he said as he switched on the taper, uh, on his tape recorder. 12th century European Christendom was losing its crusader war in the Holy Land. The crusaders needed a strong Eastern Christian ally to open up a second front against the Muslim forces of Saladin. They believed that an Astorian Christian priest king they called Prester John ruled a large Central Asian empire that extended from Tibet to the Caspian Sea. This was thought to be the empire of Karakatai, the black Chinese, a race of Tatars, many being Nestorian Christians driven out of northern China by the Han Chinese into the Tarim Basin and beyond. Their leader was a warlord named Yellow Dashi, who nearly conquered Persia in 1144 AD. Now, we originally assumed that Yellow Dashi Khan, like the Emperor Constantine, may have been baptized on his deathbed three years after the Battle of Quatwan by Bishop Johannes of the Nestorian Church in Samarkand. Twenty years later, three identical letters from Prester John were received by the Pope, the Emperor of Byzantium, and Frederick Barbarossa, Emperor of Germany. These letters were mostly a catalog of fabulous riches of Prester John's kingdom. They were not the offer of military assistance that the European sovereigns needed, and thus they were not taken seriously. Only one original copy survived, which is now in the Ethnological Museum in Berlin, Germany. A few years later, the letters were received. After the letters were received, the European traveler on the Silk Road, a certain Sir John de Mandeville, returned with a relic he claimed would decode the mysterious letter from Prester John. He sold the lamp of truth to the Byzantines. And we acquired it from a private collector in Istanbul. The leather and the lamp authenticated, authentic, were authenticated. But then Russian research then strongly suggested that the real Prester John was not Yelutashi, but rather an Armenian Georgian priest and general of the same time period named John Arbelian, a national hero of Georgia who drove the Seljuk Turks out of the Caucasus Mountains. And he was given the city of Ani and the surrounding province as his wife. Ani and its environs, the ancient kingdom of Colchis, land of the Golden Fleece, are presently within the borders of Turkey, near the Georgian border. And the treasure of the Golden Fleece is referred to in the letter from Prester John, Georgia, 
has rewritten its history to disinclude John Arbellion so the nation of Georgia forfeits all claim to the treasure. Agent Smedley interrupted. The Arbellion family are United States citizens residing in the state of Georgia, ironically. They would have claim. Pulescu gave Smedley a daggerish look. That only justifies our involvement. The treasure, if there is one, goes to the United Nations. Doc Rowland noted the angry exchange between the two. Pulescu despised America, and Smedley, a former Green Beret officer, was a patriot. Doc liked and respected Smedley. He and the agents shared the same despondency, the knowledge that they were being used. Pulescu resumed his summary, wrapping it up. Mythic archaeologists Marion Rowland Merlin and Sophia Skandar Zenobia are convinced that the letter is actually a code map to the tomb of Prester John, whom we now believe to have been John Orbelian and located somewhere near Ani in Turkey. It might well contain a treasure equal in value to the 1900s Romanov Gold Reserve. The political, economic, and historical value of such artifacts and treasures overcome any cultural objections or territorial claims. Niptec will confiscate the lot in the name of the United Nations. He switched off his tape recorder. Good hunting, Doc, Polescu added. It was the first time the director had ever called him Doc. Thanks, Victor, Doc replied. I'm actually surprised that you believe any of this. I don't. John de Mandeville was a Baron Munchausen. This operation is what you call a long shot, a very expensive long shot. However, if de Mandeville's wild tale is true and the wrong people find that treasure, it may upset a long-range plan to reform the world's financial and economic system. Now be on your way and don't forget your laugh. Smedley placed a Kevlar ammo pouch on the table. And you may also need this, he said. Doc Rowland ripped open the Velcro flap on the, on the ammo pouch. The pouch contained a threaded pistol barrel, an 8-inch long suppressor tube, and a 15-round box of subsonic 9-millimeter cartridges. You're still carrying that Browning eye power, Smedley asked. Rowland nodded. Silence is golden, the CIA agent observed. Well, let's hope so, Doc Rowland replied as he wrapped up the lamp of truth and placed it alongside the Kevlar ammo pouch in his briefcase. He nodded uh, to Victor. Give a brief, gave a brief salute to Smedley and made his exit. Chapter 2. Sophie tells her story. Things were moving quickly, too quickly to suit Roland. Sophie was pushing it from her end and Niftek was pushing him. He stayed up past midnight studying her dossier and cross-referencing the details on the Internet. She had an impressive secret history. She had eloped from Lebanon to California with Khalil in 1987. Both were exchange students from AUB, that's American University of Beirut, to California State University, Berkeley. They quickly settled into the radical political and drug culture. They joined the Order of the Temple of Baphomet, the Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley cult that had been revived in the 1970s. Sophie became their scarlet woman, appearing nude in the Gnostic Mass ceremony. She covered her body with astrological tattoos and danced in local strip clubs. There was a photograph of her performing a sex act on stage. She was arrested for prostitution twice, but not convicted. After three chapter houses of the OTB, the, or, the Order of the Temple of Baphomet, in California, were raided by the DEA in, in 1989, the leadership of OTB, in order to retain its legal status, agreed to ban the use of illegal drugs in all activities. This caused a schism in the organization. Sophie and Khalil's Lodge broke away from the order and Khalil attempted to form a new caliphate, but at this point, Sophie, who had been studying Gnosticism, had a prophetic vision and declared that she was the bride of Jesus Christ. 
Khalil took the name of Ibn Iblis and renounced Sophie, adopting a new teenage scarlet woman for his OTB splinter group. Sophie went on to Stanford for graduate work in anthropology, earning her doctorate in 1995, after which she returned to Lebanon and became an associate professor at the American University of Beirut. Meanwhile, Khalil had a vision of his own and believed that he was the reincarnation of Hassan Saba, the imam of the medieval assassins. And after 9-11, he too had returned to Beirut and joined Hezbollah. Doc Rowland finished studying the document and obliged Asia Smedley by burning it in the fireplace. I'll hear her version of it when we get to Berlin, he told himself, and I'll probably see her version of it, too. That'll be fun. The next morning, the University of California Fullerton administration called him to inform him that his classes were covered for the rest of the semester, and the following morning, a one-way flight ticket and a boarding pass to Berlin, Germany, arrived by FedEx. He scarcely had time to board his pet cat put a hold on his mail, cancel his morning newspaper delivery before he was off to LAX and on his way to Berlin. She met him at Brandenburg Airport, and they took her cab to the hotel she had booked for them near the museum island and the ethnological museum where the Prester John letter was on display. Roland still carried his briefcase while the bellhop bellhop wheeled the handcart with the rest of their luggage into the two connecting suites. Roland tipped him, and he closed the door going out. Sophie kicked off her high heels and took off her jacket. Alone at last, she said. Let's do the hot tub before, before dinner. It's out on the balcony. Roland put a finger to his lips for silence. He held up a device that looked like a cell phone. He activated a green power light and began to explore their rooms. Oh, I did all that before I left for the airport, Doc, Sophie explained. The rooms are clean. Roland ignored her and continued scanning. A lot of bugs could have been hidden by in the time it had taken her to pick him up at Brandenburg. After that, after what Smudley had revealed to him about her, he even suspected she might have planted some herself. Finally, he declared, Okay, it's clean. We could talk, and we damn well better talk, lady. You've got some explaining to do. He sat on the bed. Sophie was a tall woman without heels. She could look Doc straight in the eye, and Doc was almost six feet tall. She unbuttoned and slipped out of her her suit jacket, unzipped her skirt, and slid it down over her white silk slip. Do I get a free show, Doc asked. What's that supposed to mean, she countered. Well, I've been reading your dossier, sweetheart. Oh, it's probably phony. Well, it comes with pictures, Doc offered. She lifted her the lacy hem of her slip up under her bosom and took a step toward him. The slip was her only undergarment. Her torso displayed the mystic symbols of the planets, tattooed from the moon up to the sun. Doc's nose was ten inches from three phases of the moon. How about a close-up, she murmured. Oh, save it for the hot tub, he muttered back. I'll call room service for champagne, she offered. They were already in white terry cloth robes when the champagne arrived. They wheeled the cart with the champagne bucket and the flutes out to the hot tub, threw their robes over a chair and climbed in. The water was blood temperature and getting warmer. Doc unwired the bottleneck and and covered the cork with a washcloth. Fire in the hole, he said, and twisted the cork out with a loud pop. The hot tub and the champagne were foaming and bubbling together. They clicked glasses and Roland offered a toast. Here's to Prester John, the savior of Western civilization. Well, I'm afraid he died before he could save us, Sophia observed. Well, he may save us yet, Doc said. She gave him a quizzical look. How would that be possible, she asked. Well, I'll tell you when I know you better. Doc, I've known you for years. 
I have known anthropologist Sophia Skondar since graduate school, but nothing before that. I told you I read the dossier the agency has on you. Now, understand I'm not against sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I draw the line at terrorism, Marxism, and you have been involved with both. Sophie reached her hands out uh, to grasp the rim of the hot tub. Her breasts floated up out of the water, making a nonverbal statement. I suppose I owe you a story. But it will have to be a long one, she said. Otherwise, you won't understand why I am who I am and why I have done what I've done. Well, we've got all night, Doc said. Say on, Scheherazade. I was born on October 31st, 1975. A super Scorpio born on Halloween, and my mother was a Swedish-American professional dancer, working as a theatrical dancer when my father married her. He was a college professor with a, and a Catholic priest, and he had to renounce his priesthood when he married. I was born only a few months after the wedding. He never forgave my mother for bringing the fraternity suit that defrocked him. He always believed that she had also been involved with other men uh, while they were having their affair. My mother gave up her theatrical work and became a housewife and a mother, making a home for my father and me which he never appreciated. I grew up hearing his horrible rages against my mother, calling her a whore and a slut. I went to Catholic schools, and I was educated and socialized by nuns from kindergarten through high school. also studied ballet with the same ruthless fanaticism that some Japanese families impose on their children to learn martial arts. My mother said, I started training too late. If you ever want to be a prima ballerina, you have to begin serious dance training at age seven. I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted, but it seemed to be what my mother wanted for me. And so I did every day, but my mother had also realized that she had been too long-legged, big-boned, and full-figured to be a prima ballerina, no matter how young uh, she had started training. And even though I had started at age seven, by the time I was in high school, she and I both had to realize that I could not fulfill her dream for her. I was a very good dancer, but I had grown into a tall and full-figured woman. Starvation diets and exercise would not transform me into a petite ballerina. My mother's attempt to return to rerun her dancing career through me was one of my was one of the formative elements of my life. In fact, it defines the artistic side of my life. But my father's intellectual obsession defending the Roman Catholic Church against first-century and later medieval Gnostic heresies, which were rising up again and again with new archaeological discoveries in the 20th century, the Nagamati Library especially. Father wanted me to become an academic like he was, a Roman Catholic academic, and he had me reading Hippolytus and Arrhenius and Eusebius and Thomas Aquinas in Latin. His hatred of the Gnostic heresies was centered on a deep-seated belief that women were the source of all evil. He especially despised the Valentinian Gnostic school, which held that men and women were not complete souls until they were united in marriage. Paul Iskandar believed that the 2nd century Valentinians had evolved into the 10th century Cathars and Troubadours. He believed that the Holy Grail was an ancient conspiracy against the church and that the hideous genocide the church had launched against the Gnostic Christians in southern France was completely justified. Catharism was a cancer that had to be cut out of the Christian church. And even though I was Studying all this under his tutelage and influence, I was already becoming very critical. How does anyone justify the slaughter of a million men, women, and children simply because they refuse to attend your church? I remember saying, Daddy, this is horrible. It's as bad as the Nazi Holocaust. He gave me a strange look and said, I suppose a woman would say that. And then he glanced down at my budding teenage bosom and added, And you are almost a woman. From that moment on, I was very modest around the house. He never actually molested me, but 
there were some uncomfortable encounters. In 1985, I graduated from high school and left the nuns of St. Mary's to attend the American University of Beirut. That was where I met Khalil. He was the son of a wealthy Persian rug merchant, Yusuf Matawila. His family had moved from Iran to Lebanon and opened a store in Napatai. And as you know, Shia is the largest Muslim domination in our country and also in Persia. But Khalil was as disenchanted with the prejudices and restrictions of Shia Islam as I was of the awful history and attitudes of the Roman Catholic Church. Khalil was also a ballet student. His mother had been a dancer in the Iranian National Ballet Academy, which had been disbanded after the Islamic Revolution. This was the main reason his family moved to Lebanon. Khalil's mother and my mother soon became friends, and but my father would not allow the Matawila family in our house. Khalil was a wonderful dance partner, very handsome, intelligent, and romantic. I was very attracted to him, and I began to think we were soulmates. We did, we did not want to renounce either Islam or Christianity. That would come later. For us, the 1886 Edward Fitzgerald version of Omar Khayyam's Rubiat was our prelude to Crowley's Book of the Law. We actually memorized the Rubiat. Here with a loaf of bread beneath the bow, a flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness, ah, oh, wilderness is paradise and thou. Yeah, I memorized it too, Roland said, back when I was a freshman in college. And I tried to seduce co-eds with it. Come, fill the cup, and in the fire of spring, the winter garment of repentance spring. The bird of time has but little way to fly, and lo, the bird is on the wing. She swam up close and slithered against him. It's still magic, she whispered. Later, he said, go on with your story. She pulled away and continued. In 1987, Khalil and I transferred to USC Berkeley on the International Exchange Students Program. Of course, we were both social science majors, he in sociology and myself in anthropology. We quickly settled into the drug and radical political student culture. We discovered and joined Aleister Crowley's Temple of Baphomet, which had been established in California before World War II. This soon consumed more research and study time than our regular classwork. I had the intellectual advantage because I had already studied first century Gnosticism uh, with my father, and I was predisposed to favor Crowley's rebellious and moral interpretations, at least at that time. Much later, I would discover that Crowley's sex magic was originally Gnostic Christian. I would renounce the Temple of Baphomet and return to Christianity, my own version of Christianity. But before that time, I would certainly be the Scarlet Woman. Most of our extracurricular intellectual and social interests and activities centered around the Temple, which, although structured on a Masonic model, is more of a church than a magical lodge. And, like a church, its primary ritual is the Mass, or the Eucharist and Baphomet, they call it the ceremony of the Gnostic Mass. Instead of celebrating the death of Christ, they celebrate their version of the sacred marriage. With a nude high priest sitting on the altar and a robed high priest holding a sacred lance, which she strokes in a loving manner. Needless to say, this ceremony was the centerpiece of the Temple of Baphomet, and we, Khalil and I, being dancers, soon became the center of the Gnostic Mass. In our rendition of the ceremony, I sat nude on the altar and he approached me in a silk robe and I stroked his natural ass. And we took off, they took off our robes and began our dance, accompanied by Ravel's bolero on the stereo system. Sophie began to hum bolero as she swam over to Doc again. Doc pulled away from her. You leave my lance alone. Now you get back to your story. And, and, uh, and she said, are you in male menopause, old man? No, I've been practicing Tantra. That's enlightenment before, before ejaculation. That's not Western, she said. The greatest sin is restriction. 
do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. You replied, and right now, my will is to hear your story without any more distractions. Now say on. She pulled back and lifted her bosom out of the bubbles and continued using Scheherazade's connective phrase. It has reached me, O auspicious king, that the order of the Temple of Baphomet was entering a period of tribulation at this time. The Sultan, Gary, Gary Malarkey, had revived and reconfigured the organization after the tragic death of its modern master rocket scientist Jack Parsons in 1952. Malarkey incorporated the OTB on the same nonprofit platform as Freemasonry. He then encouraged its members to also join regular Freemasonry. Neither he nor Crowley nor Parsons had been Freemasons, but because Crowley had styled himself as a Mason of the highest degree, Malarkey, like his mentor, was in awe of the ancient and powerful international fraternity. He longed for reciprocity between the OTB and the Blue and Red Lodges to give the OTB and Crowley an imprimatur and the aura, aura of, mas of Masonic sanctity. This clandestine effort was destined to backfire. By the time the Sultan had passed on in 1985, the year before Khalil and I arrived on the scene, the infiltration of Masonry had begun, and a campaign to allow Crowley's Book of the Law to be placed on the Masonic altar in California was well underway. When Malarkey died in 1985, the OTB Sultanate headquarters moved from California to Texas. But our local OTB in California continued. Khalil had become a cocaine dealer, and, but not a user. I was the addict. He finally became master of our lodge, our profess house, and I was still his high priestess. I still loved him, and I thought of him as my soulmate. But this had been contingent on our physical relationship being exclusive. Perhaps it was the cocaine, but I actually didn't mind the celebrants uh, at our Gnostic Mass watching us have sex. I, I really enjoyed it. I was being very, a very naughty girl, but it was all permissible because it was our religion. Uh, I could imagine my high school nuns in the audience with horrified expressions on their faces. And that vision, along with the eyes of the celebrants upon me, kept me in an aphrodisiac trance, which Khalil soon exploited, proving to me that he was not my soulmate and turning my love for him to hatred. In the Thelemic system, the Scarlet Woman was the whore of the beast. And in our lives, Khalil was the beast and I was his whore. Our mass celebrations were evolving into psychedelic raves. I was having sex with other members at the meetings under Khalil's direction, and he was evolving from Crowley's conceptions of sex magic into those of Kenneth Grant, who believed that the notorious 11th degree, which Crowley had set aside for male homosexuals, was actually heterosexual as well. He reminded me that what had once been called the, per the Persian vice was now outlawed in Iran by the same revolutionary Ayatollahs who had outlawed the ballet academy. And so we added sodomy to our ceremonial dance routine. And we finally got raided, not just in the Bay Area, but two other California protest houses as well. I was arrested for prostitution, but at least the local authorities dropped that charge. Not so for the drug charges. That was federal. Then something extraordinary happened, which makes me think that the Masons may have had something to do with it. The DEA had a meeting with our current sultan in Texas. They flat out told him that if he did not clean up the OTB, no more drug dealing or even possession in protest houses, he would lose his nonprofit corporate status with the state of California and his federal tax exemption. The OTB would become a criminal organization, and of course this would mean going against the book of the law, which clearly gives Thelemites the right to enjoy strange drugs. Our current sultan, Bill Storm, was much more conservative than his drug-dealing Marxist predecessor, great Gary Malarkey, had been. He put out an edict forbidding illegal drugs at any facility or event of the Order of the Temple of Baphomet in the United States of America. 
This immediately caused a schism in the order. Many of the California lodges broke from the Sultanate. Ours was the first to go. Khalil had already been in contact with the divergent British jurisdiction headed by Kenneth Grant. I had continued my studies of early Gnostic Christianity, confirming that Crowley's Gnostic Mass was derived from the from the Russian Orthodox Mass and actually celebrated the sacred marriage of the Valentinians. Then, when a document, document suggested that Valentinius himself had been the bishop of Triatria in the first century and was, was unearthed, I had to consult the biblical book of Revelations to reassess my relationship with Khalil and my position in the OTB. You recall that the church of Korea in Anatolia was where the prophetess Jezebel had her ministry. I can recite Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 20 from memory. And unto the angel of the church in Theatria, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like a fine brass. And I know thy works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have heard a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, and to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I give her space to repent of her fornication, and she repenteth not. Roland nodded. I recall that passage. I wondered if Jezebel might have been Mary Magdalene. She was, Sophie confirmed. That's why we're going to Thyatria. We have to, Sophie whispered. That's where she is. They looked into each other's eyes for a long moment. If you say so, Doc whispered back. Then he stood up in the tub. I'm order logged. Let's get out and order up some more champagne and dinner, after which you can continue. This tale of yours is an odyssey. It'd make a hell of a movie. They put on the lush white turquoise robes that the hotel provided and finished the champagne. <laughs> Doc phoned for another bottle and the dinner menu. Room service arrived with another ice bucket of champagne and a chafing dish with beef stroganoff and Brussels sprouts. After dinner, they stretched out on one of the king-size beds, still in their robes. Doc stoked up and lit his pipe, and Sophie continued her story. It has reached me, O auspicious king, that while I was researching Valentinian Gnostic Christianity, my consort Khalil Matawila began researching Yassan Saba, leader of the medieval assassin cult, whom he reminded me had been a friend of our teenage mystic avatar, Omar Khayyam. And as I sought to channel the spirits of Mary, of Mary Magdalene and Jezebel, Khalil mirrored my efforts on the dark side by trying to reach the shade of the old man of the mountain. And while I was discovering that the sex magic of the Temple of Baphomet was derived from the sacred marriage of the Valentinians, which was originally intended to be shared only by husband and wife as soulmates, he was discovering that Hassan Saba had built a garden of paradise in his fortress of Almut, where beautiful Horis seduced the drugged recruits of his assassin cult as a visionary preview of the reward they would receive in heavenly paradise when they, when they died in an assassination mission for the cult. The horrible incident that ended any love I might have had for him happened after he had resurrected and channeled the shade of Hassan Saba. Khalil was a material basis for the evocation while I remained the personification of Babylon. I was high on cocaine and certainly in a state of sexual arousal. I lay, lay nude on a mattress while the young man Khalil was initiating into his hashashin made love to me. The neophyte was a young bisexual man, Palestinian, high-wired on a cocktail 
of Khalil's invention. As he exerted himself upon me, Khalil in his Hassan persona promised him more exquisite pleasures in paradise. Then he joined us, finishing the ceremony by sodomizing the young man while he was still having intercourse with me. And as the shade of Hassan made his thrust, he shouted, Swear that you will kill for me, even if it's the cost of your own life. Swear it. High and aroused as I was, I was nevertheless horrified by what was going on, and especially what I was being used for. I screamed, no, threw them both off my body. I slapped Khalil in the face, calling him a monster, and fled from the vault. I knew that Khalil had been attempting to create an 11th-degree demon to reinforce the initiate's obligation and to dominate whatever thought form the neophyte might be creating inside me. At least I had the satisfaction of seeing them both spill their evil seed on the floor of the vault. I have not used drugs, nor have I had sexual relations with anyone since that incident, she said. I will not misuse the sacred marriage. I will not be a vessel of evil. Never again will I be a priestess of Satan. As she declared this, she burst into tears and rolled into Doc's embrace. Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Valentine were all wrong. They meant well, but the sacred marriage is not for soulmates. There's no love in it, only lust. Doc kissed her tenderly. You know that's not true. You'll find your soulmate, Sophie. He might be closer than you think. And that's not a line from Omar Khayyam. And I'm not a co-ed, she said, as she gave him a wet kiss and a warm embrace that promised intimate surrender. Doc sat up, breaking contact. We'll continue this later, but right now, go on with your story, Sherazade. She adjusted her robe for modesty and sat back on the bed. It has reached me, most suspicious king, that after his black magic initiation was thwarted, Khalil Manwila, who now called himself Amir Khalil Ibn Iblis, transferred my duties to another temple of Baphomet, Scarlet Woman, who was willing willing to assist him in his Hashashin rituals. Sandra was only 18, a spiritual refugee from, from the Southern Bible Belt, who was just as enamored of me as she was of Khalil. We had become something of a menage a trois, and so even after I moved out, she kept me informed of Khalil's activities. The Hashashin were a subcult of his Thelemic Emirate. Most of his initiates were Shiite Palestinians, and so he was including a strong measure of Nazari Islamic doctrine in his teachings. He and Sandra were creating a secret army of suicide assassins, and they were being funded and enabled by an American billionaire and his NGO. And you would be astounded if you knew the truth, she said. I'm not easily astounded. Remember, the American Civil Liberties Union and the Anti-Defamation League both supported the American Nazi Party. So who was our biggest traitor this time? She moved to him and whispered in his ear, Victor Palescu and Miftek. Doc growled. Why does that not surprise me? I wonder if Khalil is still on Victor's payroll. Sophie nodded. He is. He called me on my cell phone before we left for Germany, she murmured. We're just about out of, out of time, and, uh, and chapter three is, is perhaps, chapter three is perhaps even more, uh, even more disturbing uh, than, uh, than chapter two. Uh, it's, it's the story of Victor Palescu. As as told and, and and revealed by Victor Palestu, and I'm I'm going to debate. Uh, frankly, I'm going to debate whether, whether whether or not we read this this one on the air. We may skip this one and just kind of very lightly summarize it, and then go on to chapter four the next time we we start. That a lot of as as you can imagine, there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of, of truth behind this, and names have been changed. Not to protect, not to protect the innocent, but anyway, I hope I hope you all enjoyed it, and uh, and uh, you know we're we're revealing a lot of uh, a lot of very uh, a very interesting uh, 
magical uh, information and, and all in this in this in novel form, in fiction form. And so until next week, continue to have a good new year and uh, and good magic. We'll see you.